0: This podcast takes you into the rarely discussed realm of the personal decisions leaders have taken that have influenced their business decisions and developed them into the leaders they are today. The refreshingly honest experiences of those who have been very successful provide an insight into the challenges they faced, the successes they achieved, and the people who influenced them along their journey. Here's our host, Mark Silveira. Welcome to Business Made Personal. We are so pleased today to have Robert Kelly with us. For those who don't know Robert, which probably isn't too many of you, I'll give you a little bit of background on him. Robert has been a practising insurance professional since 1969. In April 1996, he was instrumental in developing Steadfast with a vision to band together non-aligned insurance brokerages and adopt a unified approach to the market. He is currently the Managing Director and CEO of Steadfast. He is also a Director of various subsidiaries of Steadfast and a director of the Steadfast Foundation and charity Kids Express. Robert sits on the board of public listed company Johns Sling Group. In 2014, he was equal first most influential person in the insurance industry and he was also awarded Accord's prestigious Rainmaker Award. In 2015, Robert was listed as one of the finalists in CEO Magazine's CEO of the Year Award. Robert has been for the last 16 years and continues to be the claims manager, believe it or not, on the Steadfast Professional Indemnity Program. In 2016, he was awarded Niebuhr's Lex McEwen Award. So pleased to have you
1: with us today, Robert. Thank you, Ma. And thank you for the illustrious introduction. I hope I can live up to it. Oh, you already have, my friend. Don't worry about that. So
0: going back, rumour has it that you did two years at the University of Technology in Sydney.
1: I'm interested to know what you studied over there, Robert. I did two stints at the University of Technology. The first one was to get um, part way through an accounting degree, not ever wanting to be an accountant, but realising that uh, in my mind, and I think in practice as well, I lacked in that side of my business acumen. Uh, I lacked in a lot of ways in business acumen, but that was one that I thought was humane to being successful. So I went through and did and did about two years of accounting on a part-time basis until uh, uh, I felt that I had a full grasp of, of the nuances of, of a balance sheet and how you put together a capital the capital accounts and, and indeed control of expense and, and income from that. And then I did a, a degree in risk management there at a later a time. So I'm a, a double alumni from that uh, august uh, operating uh, uh, entity called University of Technology. It wasn't those days. It had a different name in the earlier days and then it became the University of Technology.
0: I want to come back to the education piece a bit later on when we're speaking.
1: But the other thing
0: I found out about you through my sources is that you were selling life insurance early in your business career.
1: Yeah, that's how I started in insurance. I had um, aspirations to be a lawyer uh, when I left school and I was going to do the SAB, the Solicitation Board. And then my local lawyer who was going to make me an articles clerk said, can you take a, a gap year? I went, yes, can I take a gap here? I didn't want to go to university anyway. Okay. And so I worked for a couple of years for a company and, um, and then it, by that stage, I, I, I'd, I'd had the taste of what commerce was like and what, what work it was like and, and that I, I had an energy for, for business. I think in those days I had no experience, but an energy. And so I thought I'd, I'd try and put that energy to, to other users. And, uh, I worked for a company called Chlorine Distributors who were, who were, uh, uh, importers of uh, felt and textiles, New Zealand's carpets uh, and, and the uh, Armstrong brand of uh, nylon falling out of uh, America. I made a success of that and uh, I was um, uh, given the territory of uh, the far north coast and the city and I did the occasional uh, trip to Melbourne when I was, I guess I get stage, I was 18 and a half at that stage, 19. So I worked there till I was about uh, just on, until 20 and then I decided that I would um, look for something else to do. I, I'd had a successful career there, and I applied to a company called Nelson and Robertson to be their South Pacific sales promotion manager, based in Papua New Guinea. And somehow I jagged the job. I did put my age up four years, but that was—I uh, was a big guy, and uh, I, I got away with it. And the first thing they did with me was they sent me to. Uh, I had a month of indoctrination with the company. In Sydney, I found them to be stodgy and old-fashioned. They were an island trading company, mostly around the around the Pacific Basin uh, or the Asia, uh, the the Pacific area. And uh, the first job was to go with the general manager and spend six weeks in Papua New Guinea and going all over that uh, area and, and parts of the Pacific to see what they did there. And then I was to come back to Sydney, and I was to go back up there and be based out of uh, La and operate. So. We, it was a, a cohort of him, myself, and then the chief clerk of a company called um, Bankers and Traders, which is the B and QBE. And after about a week, I, I said to the chief clerk, uh, Vance, uh, I said, what, what do we actually do for you? He said, you're our agents all over the Pacific. He said, how does that work? He said, well, you sell our insurance product, you bank the money to our account, and we send you 33.3% of that back. And so I thought, my God, after a couple of days of this, so I, I actually did an intensive course over the six weeks of what happened about insurance, I guess, agency at that particular time, but the relationship between distribution and manufacture and having a field of influence that you could put it through. So to cut an incredibly long story short, I came back and I resigned from the company, much of the chagrin, I must say, of, the, of them. I had to go before the board and say, look, it's not going to work out for me at all. Going up there, I'm not suited to what you want me to do. I don't see that that's what it is. And what, what I'm going to do. So, as luck has it, a fellow called Fred Alderton rang me who, who'd, uh, to update my life insurance. I said, Fred, it's a bad time to call me. I've just resigned my job and I'm going to get into insurance. He said, We should do lunch, and so I started uh, uh, the next week in a traineeship to do life insurance, and that's how I got into it. I never wanted to be a life salesman. After about three months. In fact, I started there in the February of 69, and by the June of 69, I'd earned more money than what I'd earned in the prior 12 months, uh, and I was getting a reasonably good job. So I quickly decided that I'd get into general insurance, and and the first person to give me opportunity was a fellow called Lawrence J. Adler, Larry Adler, who gave me a a covenant book for FAI, uh, Fire and all Risks in those days. And off I started and I set up a, set up a company with no experience whatsoever and called myself an insurance broker. And um, I think six years later, I went broke for $114,000, which was great. The next seven years of my life, paying back $114,000. People go, wasn't that a fantastic experience? I said, you've never gone broke and had to pay back that sort of money. It's not a great experience. It's a stupid experience. Okay, It certainly made me understand. That's the reason why I went and did, um, did accounting. Tell me about
0: 1974, where you did go, you did sort of lose everything, because you were doing very, very well prior to that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I had 19 people standing, working for me. I had 11 cars, and I had got into uh, selling life insurance through a subsidiary with a fellow called Dennis Preston, who was protege of, uh, he was a St. George footballer, and a really good friend, still a friend today. And we had a whole lot of guys on the road selling life insurance, and and one day, and one month, instead of getting, it doesn't sound like huge money today, instead of getting a commission check for 40-odd grand from the Phoenix in those days, I had um, uh, 40-odd grand taken out of my cash flow. Anyway, I, I was inane and stupid in those days. I thought, oh, I'm broke. I'd better put myself into, into liquidation and get out of this. And uh, I always remember I went to John O'Brien, who was in a company called, I think, Pegler Ellison Co., and said he'd, be, he'd gone to the same school as I, uh, a few years ahead of me. And he said, um, he taught me a couple of valued lessons, actually. Uh, you never close your options. Why did you do this? I said, because I owe more money than what I'm owed. He said, owed about 80% of the other people walking around the street are in that position. So I was young and I was inexperienced. I thought I was brought up a Catholic and I thought you had to own up to your problems and those days. So everybody thought I was a crook. I wasn't a crook. I was an idiot. Okay. And so I shut it down. Uh, it cost me a marriage. Cost me a lot of friends in those particular days. Although one of my closest friends there was was a fellow called Brian Swales, and he he and I re- rekindled, and we're still pretty tight mates nowadays. So life's a journey, Mark. Life's a journey.
0: Oh, absolutely, Robert. And we've been through some of it together. We're in the early steadfast days, and and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But just want to understand, you know, when things like that actually happen. I would imagine you'd been gutted, right? You'd be, you'd be thinking, I've got all this money to pay back. There's people sitting on the end of this. My marriage is not going to work. I'm losing friends. What was happening for you mentally at that point? Do you remember?
1: I think at that stage, I was like a, a car hitting a brick wall. The reality of life hit me. Um, I was, um, it was interesting. You, I went and drove a taxi and I, I did cleaning and stuff like that. I sold my yacht. Uh, I gave back my Mercedes to the lease company. I to get enough money to buy an 1100, and uh, I worked um, a fellow for a few months. Paul Laney from injury Lane insurance, was the ex police commissioner's son. And I said, I, I can't work in the insurance breaking in- industry anymore. I just can't face people. I had a pretty close relationship with Jack Gibson. A lot of people don't know who Jack Gibson was, but he was he was a fairly successful, a very successful football coach in rugby league. And a fellow who, uh, who I played squash with on Wednesdays, he was a lot older than me, he was 18, 19 years older than me. A piece of business that I placed with one of the insurers was to insure his Cadillac, and uh, he smashed it up, and the insurance company uh, didn't honor the policy. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. Jack was a, a fairly tough guy in those days, and uh, not a man to mix words. And I was living in my parents' uh, hotel um, because we'd separated and I was getting a divorce and stuff like that at that stage. I rang up Jack and I said, look, the car's not covered. I'm in trouble. And he said, leave it with me anyway. Uh, my mother came up and said, you won't believe who's in the bar. Uh, Jack Gibson, now who's pretty famous in those days, and the whole bar looked at him. So I went down. I thought, well, this is it. Uh, he arrived with two of his um, what I would call uh, henchmen, guys who worked in his business. Um, and uh, he said, I don't want to ever talk to you, Kel. And I thought, oh, this will be great. I'm going to get the hell out of me, that I deserve it. He said, you're not a crook, you're an idiot, Kel. You've got a lot going for you. He only ever called me Kel. He said, uh, and he said, I don't think you did any of this deliberately, and I think you're a victim of your own inexperience. So he said, i will let you off. But he said, I want you to remember this for the rest of your life, that at a time when you were down, and people could have kicked the crap out of you and you deserve to have a cat poop out of you, I gave you a break. So I want you to think about that through the rest of your career. And it's something that it's funny how something spins in your mind and I guess I was grateful for that and I took his advice and I have adopted that philosophy all through my career. So even people that I haven't um, had a lot of regard for, I've never, ever, ever put them into a position where I was in a, in a gotcha situation. So. I learned very quickly from that and I was very pleased that I could say Jack Gibson had been a friend of mine for a decade.
0: And it's interesting, isn't it, that you couch it in that sort of frame because those sorts of things can be absolutely pivotal in terms of what you do in your working life and whether you then choose to pay it forward as well. And having known you for a couple of years... 26 or 27 years. Yeah, that's right. So I know that you've actually done that, right? And do you credit Jack Gibson with
1: that Yes, without a doubt. He's the guy, he is the epiphany in my life. At a time when I was down and people didn't want to talk to me. People thought I was a crook, okay? And he's a guy that was very influential and I'd cost probably $3,000 to in those days or $4,000 to, gave me a break. Saw through a lot of my inadequacies and a lot of my stupidities and a lot of that and gave me a light at the end of the tunnel to say, you're better than where you are. And you're an idiot for what you've done, but I'm going to give you a break. That was a pivotal thing in my mind to actually transcend the way I was thinking about myself and also give me, at your darkest hour, to have have a bright light come and shine on you and give you a way forward. It was wonderful for me, absolutely wonderful.
0: So what was it that he saw in you? What do you think was going through his mind when he made that decision? Because I, mean, I know it's only $3,000, but it would have been a lot of money back then, right? Yeah, I, I think
1: it would have been like about a $15,000 claim today or something like that, you know, so today's money. What went through, why would he do that to me? It had a lot to do with me. My first wife, wife had taught one of his sons and that boy had committed suicide and I'd helped him, uh, for instance. He wanted to learn the defence patterns of the American Football League, and so he wanted to write to the San Francisco 49ers, and, and he asked me to do all of those letters. So I wrote all those letters for him, and I penned the replies and worked closely with him. He had a few issues that I solved for him outside the commercial relationship we had, and... Um, he, he used to have a bad back and a couple of times he rang me up and said, can you drive me somewhere? Once was the St. George, St. George training when he was coaching St. George. And it was funny. I, I was in the dressing room and St. George, I can't even remember who they played, but they had were thrashed at half time. And I thought, this is going to be interesting. He's a super coach. Uh, his team is coaching. They've been annihilated. What is he going to do at half time? He didn't say a word, not a word. He said nothing. And I thought, and so, I couldn't believe it. I thought I didn't talk to him after. So on the Tuesday, driving home, I said to him, you didn't say anything at half time, right, Guru?" And he said there was nothing I could say. He said we'd practised everything. They knew what to do. They knew the game plan. He said they run on the field and play the game, not me. He said they all knew what they hadn't done. He said nothing I could have said could have helped them. So he said by not saying anything, was more impactful than by standing there and telling, and, and telling everybody what they'd done wrong, okay? But he said, I'll talk to them on Tuesday night about where we fail and stuff like that. So it was a solitude lesson for me to know that sometimes not opening your mouth is a lot more powerful than actually telling, expressing yourself. No doubt about that. Hey, yeah, so in 1981, you joined forces with Cole
0: Delaney and then later um, Mr Golding joined the group and you guys set up Delaney Kelly Golding. At that stage... What were the challenges that you were facing? Because, you know, earlier you said, look, you you didn't know anything really about insurance broking other than what you've learned through the life insurance component,
1: What I had done in insurance broking was I had become a student of insurance. So whilst I, I felt I was inept in the financial side of the business, I wasn't inept in the technical side of what to do. And from day one, I spent my entire life doing two things, understanding what insurance was and when I found boundaries, I didn't understand not asking somebody but learning what it was and understanding and becoming an expert in that area. So I was a really, really good insurance broker. And before I joined uh, Cole in 76, I decided that as uh, when I'd left Colin uh, after spending a few months because I couldn't work in that, I decided that I needed to stop driving a cab. In fact, a long-standing friend of mine came and saw me, uh, Bob McKinnon, and he said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm driving a cab and I'm doing cleaning. And he said, No, 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 no. You're not listening to me. What, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm surviving. He said, So was this it? The skill that got you to where you were before God, okay? Because he said, If it is, I'll support you, and you're driving the cab. It's great. It's terrific. Great. You know, it's all right. Be a cleaner. Or, or is it time you consider what to do? And so I thought on that. And I thought, you know what? Maybe this time to restart. And I thought, I can't go back in the insurance industry. I have to pay back this money because I don't want to walk around the street. With people going, there's that uh, guy who, who went broke and, you know, look at him now. He's doing okay. So I decided that, that I was probably a salesman. Okay. That's probably my only skill. Um, however bad or good that may have been. And in, in doing that, I thought, what will I sell? I thought, I'd like to sell cars a little. Oh, no, I don't want to sell cars. I've got a penchant for cars, but I don't want to sell cars. Insurance is probably out because of all the reasons we're struggling. So I went through and thought, I'll sell real estate. I went through and I just looked at the jobs in real estate. I looked at the emblem that appealed to me most. The end that appealed to me most was Mervac. So I went boom and I, I rang Mervac and said, can I come and interview? And uh, anyway, they interviewed me and and um, they said, look, the two the two partners that own the business would like to interview you, okay, which was uh, Henry Pollock and Bob Hamilton. And uh, they interviewed me and they, and they said uh, – Look, we're going to give you the job, and I said, "Oh, you know, so you guys own the business." They said, "Well, we we own forty nine percent of the business, and AGC own the other forty nine percent." And I said, "Do you know Stan Hamley?" And they said, yes, Dan Hamley's on our, on our board. I said, well, he's been trying to put me in jail because I owe AGC money. So I said, there's no hope that he's going to allow you to employ me. So we're wasting one another's time. They said, he doesn't run the business. They invest, they invest in the business. You got the job. Anyway, the interesting part of that was, and it shows you how nothing you do is inane. You know, I, I had been a reasonably good sailor. You know, I still sail yachts and race yachts. Henry had a boat, a yacht. And, and they used to have drinks on a, on a Friday afternoon, and, and he, I got invited to the drinks, which I thought was all right for him. And so he, he sought me out after the interview, and he said, you said you sailed, you know, do you know how to put up a spinnaker? And I said, um, yep, up a spinnaker blindfolded, you know. He said, will, will you come sailing on my boat? Anyway, cut tell a long story short, we ended up, uh, he and I, sailing his yacht up Sydney Harbour on a Saturday afternoon. And we got up to North Manly and it was a nor'easter blowing. And I said, well, let's go down the harbour and we'll put the spinnaker up. And he said, oh, okay, do, do, do you think it'll be fine? I said, yeah, it's not too difficult. And I said, um, have you got a cloth? And he said, oh, this cloth's here. What are you going to do? I said, I'm just going to put a, tire, a uh, cloth around my eyes to show you I can not put them up by and sold it. I'd already read it downstairs. So anyway, cut along through. I put up my So that was the thing that um connected to Henry and I, and he was a longstanding supporter of me and, and eventually got me to look at the Mervac portfolio as they were a, owned by AGC Insurance and uh, AGC made them an agent and uh, they were an agent and they, AGC did all their work. Anyway, they wanted to know whether or not they were getting ripped off, so to cut a long story short, uh, I saved them $167,000 that year. It doesn't sound like a lot of money today, but I can tell you in 1976, the beginning of 77, 77, March 77, 77, that was a lot of money. And so that's got me back in in a different way. They made me their risk manager. And, uh, and then Cole Delaney's son was working in the business in 81, who now had a fight and he left. And Cole said, come into the business. So, um, I said, I won't commit to the business. I'll come in and look for three months, and if we work out, I'll stay. So I did stay, and, and that was how I got back into it. And then what I realised quickly, if you, if you think about that, in 81, over that period, the insurance industry was going through a metamorphosis, that uh, distribution was nothing. Uh, insurance companies were looking for the major insurers, major insurance brokers to give them lumps of 20 and $30 million, and the small to medium enterprise uh, brokers were being ignored. So that was the genesis of, of how I put together the what Steadfast could look like and
0: how i got into it, yeah. I, I remember that clearly. You know, there's a common thread going through here, Robert, that I'm picking up, right? And you've mentioned this a couple of times. You didn't really understand a specific thing like accounting, so you went and learnt about it. You didn't specifically understand about risk management, so you went and learnt about it. You didn't totally understand general insurance, so you went and learnt about it. What makes you so inquisitive is, you know, is it that sort of fear of failure or is it that desire for success? What, what is it that sort of makes you go that extra distance?
1: I don't know. There's, some, there's probably something inside me and, and the people who work around me here know if I ask a question, I'm not doubting what they've said to me or I'm not questioning their decision. I just need to know a little bit more about it. I, I think I've got a, you know, I have an eclectic um, point of view in music you know like once a few years ago i saw acdc on tuesday night and went to labo aim La on the saturday night so i got a quick taste in in music and i've got an inquisitive mind about stuff i'm really interested in stuff i'm not interested in i'm i'm terrible about if i don't know something and i want to know about it i want to actually learn the, what it is that makes me makes it tick from that point of view that doesn't mean i don't you know, running a public company, rely on a whole lot of people. But still in all, the people around me know that I know a lot about what we do. And if I ask for specific, I actually want to own that I don't want them to say this is the answer. I want them to tell me the rationale for the answer. So I've always got to have to know the rationale for the answer. It's something innate inside me from the other people are interested uh, will will be happy to rely upon them i do rely greatly on the people around me and i respect their expertise but i never want to be in a room going oh is that how it happened i want to know why it happens i'm interested in people i'm not disinterested in people i I'm, people fascinate me and, and what motivates people and what keeps them going fascinates me so i i think if you've got a natural inquiry about people then life's really interesting. If, if you take people as a, an inanimate object that just you pass through just like a piece of paper, then life must be pretty boring and pretty bad, I think.
0: And we will speak a little bit about people a bit later. We're speaking with Robert Kelly, who's the MD and CEO of the Steadfast Group. Robert, it would be remiss of me if I didn't speak a little bit about Steadfast. It's where you and I met all those squillions of years ago. Probably the fondest time in my in my working career to be involved with something that was, you know, at that stage, no one knew what, you know, what sort of a juggernaut it would
1: be. No, we certainly didn't. I mean, people think that I had this grand plan and I've executed a grand plan and how smart and clever I am. And if only they knew those early days, Mark, it was, <laughs> there was no grand plan, it was survival.
0: I remember it very well, my friend, because uh, I was the general manager with you. You were on the board. One of the things that fascinated me, and, and, you know, on that board, we had some, we had some heavy hitters, you know, we had Colin Cowden, we had Brian Austin, we had Ian Frith, we had you, we we had a lot, we had the bear, you know, we had a number of really high profile, very successful individuals. But I got to tell you, the one thing that stuck with me from then to now is of all of the people that sat on the board or all of the people that were involved in Steadfast. For some reason, you seemed to be most linked to making that thing work. What was that for you? What, what could you see that, you know, others may not have or, or didn't see as clearly?
1: I think I believed in what we were doing. And I, can I say this without sounding, I did it for the common good of everybody, not the common good of me. I came to make a success of it.
0: And I remember that clearly. I mean, at one stage, I think you were doing 90% of the work in terms of some of the admin stuff behind the scenes and trying to run your own business and not getting paid anything. I think all of the board were paying for their own airfares, for their own accommodation. You know, they were paying for everything themselves. It wasn't, it wasn't as though it was a company that was doling out money, right? No, no, it wasn't. No,
1: it wasn't. That's a very important point. Now, should Somebody pointed out how wrong you can be about doing that sometimes because... I was adamant that we paid all our own way, okay, and it was quite, you know, you what? Know, I went all around Australia, I went everywhere. I, paid, I did our first overseas trips out of my pocket, everything, all that. But somebody said to me, and I, and I changed instantly, they said, you know what, you're creating an elitist group running this company. And I said, what do you mean? We're all down to earth, you know. And they said, what about this smaller guy who can't afford to pay their way? but represent a great section of the people you're bringing together. You know, it hit me like a rock. I thought, you're absolutely right. So we instantly said we would pay the expenses of directors. And we instantly got onto the board a whole lot of people that were arranged. No, I shouldn't say a whole lot, but a couple of people who represented a different perspective over what we had and was absolutely a different strain of people that we got, there, that got onto the board. So you can always learn about your methodology sometimes and modify and change it. So talk me through that part
0: of it, though, because, you know, and and I understand exactly what you're saying. I guess the question I have for you, though, is you were still trying to run your own business. At this stage, you're in a family-run business called Delaney Kelly Golding, like all the other board members. How were you able to do both of those things at the one time?
1: With great difficulty, if you want. And it was, I had a business that did business all around Australia. So I tried to link my business trips together with that. That didn't work a lot of the time. I got a passion for this that was I was not able to to fix. Okay, so I realised that I wouldn't be able to sit back on the outside and go back to my business at an early stage. Okay, and I realised that my effort on this place was I don't know. If this sounds sounds that I was the one to do it. Okay, out of all the board members. Okay, I had the desire. I had partially had the skill. And that the future of a lot of people was resting in a direction I was taking because we were getting people following us, if you remember. They were coming on board. They were going, Wow, we want to be part of this. Okay. So I did not turn the back on my business, but I idled my business along. Okay. And put the effort into this business.
0: And and at that stage you didn't have your sons there running the business because
1: No, no, no.
0: And I and I remember the, you know, I won't spend too much time reminiscing, but I remember the first steadfast conference. Which is at Albert Park.
1: Albert Park, yes.
0: If you remember, we were jumping up and down. We thought we'd made, we thought we'd made the big time, Robert, because we had two hundred delegates attending that conference.
1: Sure did, and we had luminaries like Rodney Adler talking. and It was, yes, I remember it
0: well. It was fantastic. I mean, at that stage, you know, I just wonder whether you thought, yes, this is going to get bigger each year, or whether at that point you've gone, you know, what we're doing pretty well. This is a good group. Particularly in light of the fact that the whole thing was championing the SME brokerages, right?
1: I had no idea it was going to go the way it was, except that it was a it reminded me of a of a truck going down a hill, right It kept gaining momentum and momentum stimulates and stimulation gives you mental capacity and and then I guess ego gets you going from that point of view. you know I can remember when the sum of everything that we were doing was was going to be, probably $100 million worth of turnover and we were going, gee, I think we're going to get $100 million out of all this and um, our GWP sales last year were $9.8 billion. Well, it just shows you if you get a group of people who are all aligned to the same philosophy and you all pull together and you put the egos aside and you just go, you know what, if we want to survive, we have to do this and they all agree and they all do it, then it works. Oh,
0: yeah. makes such a difference, doesn't it? I just want to run you through. The Sydney Morning Herald in 2013 ran the headline, Kelly, a steadfast and ageless CEO. What is it that keeps motivating you to keep doing what you're doing?
1: Um, I really like what I do. It's I work in a stimulating environment and I never consider what I'm doing as work. I consider what I'm doing as, gee, this is, a, this is fantastic. We've done stuff that's good. I'm blessed to have a group of people around me that are smart and intelligent and we can run off one another. And um, every day is different. You know, it's not the same old, same old all the time. So it's kept me young, I guess, in many ways. I, don't, I mean, I, 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 every time I forget something, I think, oh, God, am I getting old? Then somebody 30 years younger than me and forgets and cocks something up, and they oh, my mum. Maybe I'm still, I've still got it. No, I mean, I think keeping your brain active and and sometimes the the weeks are very active here is a stimulation beyond any other stimulation between monetary stimulation, between physical stimulation. It's just wonderful. It's self-generative. It's like kinetic energy. This place for me that it keeps regenerating me all the time. And at the moment I've got my health and my energy and my strength and I still exercise. I still. Do sport. I still I still ski. I still race ocean race my yacht. I still ride the occasional motorbike. I don't think I've put a timeline uh, on when I'm going to get old. But I guess I will get old. I suppose. I, mean, I don't know.
0: We're all getting older, but it's, it's really a question of whether we're still able to value add value. Right?
1: That's exactly right. I mean, in the day, I think this thing's passed me by. With the day, I'll be out the door.
0: So let's talk a little bit about that. So technology is the buzzword these days and it's making life very easy for some and quite difficult for others. What's your view on technology within the industry and what people need to do to make sure they continue to stay relevant?
1: I think that the industry is absolutely dictated by the way it handles its digital information and and the cost of having human beings do that handling is becoming far too expensive, and we handle a plethora of information. Uh, you know, like the client trading platform we've got for house and car, and um, did a tad under a billion quotes last year, okay, on an automated basis. So, okay, and that resulted in in uh, around three hundred and eighty million dollars worth of business. So, this industry has to do a lot of data analysis to do to write business. So, yeah, if you're not conversant with moving into a digital age, you should get out of this industry. Unfortunately, it's remained the way we operate. We have to handle the digital data efficiently and we have to not have too many human hands touching
0: it. I'd like to move across to a different topic, which is more, you know, because we've got a lot of listeners here who, you know, come from different backgrounds. Some are new to the industry. Some have been in the industry a little while. You know, one of the things that, that's often often said is that, you know, successful people are a result of the mistakes that they've made, but more importantly, what they've learned from those mistakes? What do you think you've learned from your mistakes?
1: I think that there's some, what do they do? They say a fool is somebody who keeps making the same mistake. Okay, the difference between a fool and somebody who's clever is somebody who learns from their mistake. And I think, I mean, every time something goes wrong for me, I deconstruct what occurred and how I could have done it differently differently and how next time it occurs, I'll pay reference in the back of my mind as to what occurred last time. It's convoluted to say it that way. But if you don't, I often see people that are highly successful who never make a mistake. And I know that's not true. And I know that in the purvey of what they look after, people go, you know what, he never admits his mistakes. I think if you, I think the number one thing you've got to do is admit your mistakes. You've got to be accountable to yourself first and all the people that are, that are affected by that mistake. And, and you've got to have enough uh, wherewithal within yourself to reload again and make sure you don't do the same thing a second time around.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just going back, you know, you talked about your younger self when you were looking to get into some sort of work. If you were to go back to that young Robert Kelly, what advice would you give him?
1: Listen to what people told you ask questions, align yourself with people that, that know what they're doing and never, ever, ever think that you've got the game sewn up. I was fortunate. till I was about 25, I never found anybody smarter than me. Then I went through this absolute epiphany of hate and hell and I spent several years thinking I'm the dumbest person in the room. If I'd have learnt that I was probably not the smartest person in the room Several years earlier, I probably would have had a better life. Is that right? The number one thing I'd do is, you know, it's that old adage, you've got two ears and one mouth. Do a lot more listening than you do talking and take advice. Don't take advice from the first person, but uh, take a quorum of advice over something you're going to do and and form a, a view over the top of what all that advice means. Never, ever think you've got the game sewn up. Of course, you never have.
0: I remember reading a saying once that said, if you think you're the smartest person in the room, you're probably in the wrong room.
1: You're in the wrong room, yes. It's a great thing, mate. It's a great adage, But very, very wise, very, very wise. Hey, um,
0: you know, there's people looking, looking at you and seeing someone that's successful. They haven't seen the hard yards. They haven't seen, you know, what you've had to go through it and your explanation around the time when, you know, you lost everything, including marriages, including friends. If you were looking to give people some advice who are looking to advance their careers, what would you tell them to focus on?
1: I think the core thing is to be true to yourself. Don't pretend you're something you're not. Understand what your attributes, attributes are. Work on those attributes and develop the inadequacies you've got that you can fix and the ones you can't fix. Don't make, make sure that they're not going to be a hesitant hindrance to you in whatever career you're going to do on, and whatever you're going to do within that career.
0: You mentioned a couple of people that have influenced you quite significantly along the way. You've talked about Jack Gibson, you've talked about Bob McEwen. How important do you think mentors are in people's lives from a career perspective?
1: I think people who you can rely upon to give you correct advice that have a reasonable success ratio are very, very important. And I'm a great men believer in mentoring. I encourage our successful people here to mentor people. And I do it to some people as well. And I have people who I ring up and say, what do you think about that and that? Okay. And I think it's very important. You can always learn from people that are more experienced than you and that that are more uh, willing to share their experiences and tell you uh, candidly what they think of, of, of a question you put
0: And the point that you make is quite intriguing to me because, uh, you know, and you would have been the same. When I, you know, fell into this industry, and I say that because most of us didn't choose it, when I fell into this industry, I had plenty of people around me who were much more experienced campaigners, who knew how to underwrite, they knew how to settle claims, they knew what to look for. Do you think we've lost a little bit of that these days in our current Australian insurance environment?
1: I think the transition from the mate-type placing of insurance and the traditional lines of communication between over to ask somebody to do something, they're probably gone. And I think the margins that are so fine in general insurance now because of all of the weather events, because of the, uh, the very state of the competitive nature of capital and it comes into the general insurance market, I think it's very, very important to understand that, yes, it, it, it's changed. Um, it, whilst this is a people business in distribution with the clients you've got, in general insurance, it's now becoming capital gain, very much so. And disciplines that uh, in days gone by went out the window have got to be germane to the way they operate nowadays. And we're seeing that in the current uh, environment in the general insurance industry where it's, it's, it's what's classically classified as a hard market. It's not a hard market it's just the pricing mechanism being just adjusted to try and get the insurers back to a, a profitable margin that hasn't happened just yet so yeah I think it's it's very and very important to understand that although it's a people business it's now very much a capital business as well and return on capital is absolutely the main the main game for the general insurers and they're not doing it as well as they should and in some cases
0: and do you think that's to the betterment of people involved in the in the industry
1: makes it more it clarifies more the way the business is done and it clarifies more about things outside price and more into serviceability um, claims management and takes away from i'll fix this for you jack jill or whatever okay that's why i I think long term it's better it's better
0: so let's just talk about serviceability for for a moment i mean one of the things, each year, the Roy Morgan image of profession survey comes out. You know, they, they rank 30 professions. Insurance brokers consistently ranking in the bottom four of that 30, you know, just, just above used car salespeople. What do you think we need to do to change that view of from the general public's perspective?
1: I think the disconnect between uh, insurance brokers and insurance companies, per se, is blurred. And I th- the delineation between distribution and manufacture is blurred in the consumer's mind. And I think a poor experience sometimes when people ask about insurance brokers is merged into a poor experience that a consumer's had uh, with an insurer. So I think it's very difficult to change that perspective other than to say this in defence of our industry. And I mean, I'm fortunate that I represent in our network just under 40% of the intermediary business in Australia. Okay, so we can talk with a little bit of authority. The retention rate of most brokers is in the high 90%. So if the public perceives that we're at not trustworthy and down the bottom end, they're in that 2% that leaves us every year not the 98% that stays with us.
0: And, you know, just underlining exactly what you just said, I think the, the AFCA stats came out not so long ago. And the number of complaints against brokers was absolutely minimal. It was negligible. Which is fascinating. I've got two more questions for you, Robert, before we, we finish with you. The first one is that, is there anything specific, knowing what you know now, looking back over your career, you know, looking back at what you've done, is there anything specific you would certainly devote more time to than you had previously?
1: That's a, an interesting and a difficult question. I'd have pay, I'd have devoted a, a bit earlier in my career more time to the social side of what commerce and big business should do. I think I was self-centered in my early years. I think I didn't understand uh, the parameters of social living of some people and stuff like that. I think I would have been involved earlier in in trying to do something for the underprivileged. You know, my grandfather died in the street, a drunkard. you know, and my uncle was, a dr- was an alcoholic. I had alcoholics down my... And I, I spent a lot of time as a, a kid bringing up my grandfather out of the street. And it took me many years before I started to say, you know what, you're doing okay. It's time you actually put a bit back into that side. So I think I, should, I could have done that a lot earlier. I probably would have spent more time um, with my, my kids. I would have respected my wife, my first wife lot more than what I did I, th- I mean I got a yacht I got the Mercedes I got a wife I got kids and, but, but I still live my life I think reflecting back that's probably the things that I reflect upon from that point of view well the good thing
0: is not too late to change it is that one of the reasons why you don't drink alcohol
1: I think it must be I mean I mean alcohol never was a big thing for me even when I was younger it was going out hey let's go again. and I okay yeah, yeah yeah and I drink two beers and think I didn't enjoy that but, but yeah I mean I've I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a prude. This, You know, our bar's full here and steadfast, and, we, uh, and, and, and you know, I'm, I'll have a light beer or, or something like that, but it's not important to me. Smoking and alcohol, I never did drugs either, so, I mean, maybe I'm that frigging boring, Mark.
0: Not that you're willing to admit on the podcast anyway, Robert.
1: I did have a few other vices, but we won't go there, so, yeah.
0: <laughs> we'll do that offline, off as they say. Hey, final question for you, sir. What's next for Robert Kelly?
1: Next week? Investor briefings, keep running the business.
0: I mean generally in life, my friend.
1: For me, probably to uh, make sure that my grandkids and I've got a good relationship, keep it going, you know, sort of like that. Understand a little bit more about um, the social side of life. Make sure that I don't miss being there for my grandkids when they need to come running to a grandfather and say, hey, my parents are absolute bastards. I can't live with them anymore. And I go, let come here. I understand. I made them. I know what they're like.
0: Hey, it's been an absolute pleasure and a delight as always to speak with you and uh, it's such a great thing to have you on Business Made Personal. Uh, we really uh, thank you very much for what you've, uh, what you've done, not just for the industry, but also for me personally, and I won't go into that right now, but uh, it's been an absolute pleasure.
1: You're a good man. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure and I enjoyed it uh, and I, I wish you well with it. Take care. Cheers. Thanks, Robert.
0: Thank you so much for lending us your ears. Please remember to click follow on your podcast app or subscribe at bmppodcast.com.au so we can give you a sneak peek of our next guest. Until next time, I'm Mark Silvera and you've been listening
1: to Business Made Personal.